0: Today's episode is a chat with stand-up comic, writer, and writer—one for TV, one for a book—Guy Branham. Guy, Guy is old pal of mine, so so happy to talk to this person. And may I also say, hey, speaking of stand-up, if you live in Los Angeles, would you like to come see me do stand-up here at Dynasty Typewriter in our city on September 21st? Good. Also, if you live in Raleigh, I will be there at your city. I will be there at your city on September 27th and 28th. So please come to that and you can get a full write-up. That's not anything. You can get a full list of my upcoming dates at CameronEsposito.com slash tour. Enjoy. 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 I've been feeling wrong, but I'm I have folks introduce themselves. Will you introduce yourself?
1: Sure. Hello, I am Guy Branham, the former host of Talk Show the Game Show on True TV, and the author of My Life is a Goddess available wherever books are sold.
0: <laughs> you know what's really good about that? Is I include the part where I say, Will you introduce yourself? And there was a tiny moment before you got into your like Guy Branham vo- voice where you said sure in like this like very private. You and I just seeing each other face-to-face voice, and then you transitioned into this like beautiful, performative stage voice that I've seen you use. That's
1: very sweet, but I also think one of the things about stand-up more so than other things is having an off position is astoundingly important, (laughs) Um, because I feel like in the way that actors can be on a lot of the time— Their on is a sharing on, and our on is a, I'm the most important person in this theater on. Mm. And so when we are with each other, it would be brutal if we didn't have access to that.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, that's funny that you say that, because I feel like that's definitely how I am. Yeah. Definitely how I am. And then I also feel like sometimes I see comics who seem to be able to, like, sort of function at this comic level all the time. And I have no access to that. I just, I cannot, like, relate to that at all. So it's interesting to me that, for you, there's, like, a big difference between your on and offstage personality or
1: I mean, persona. I don't know that those things are so different from each other. I think it's a different sensibility. I think, for me, it's a sliding scale. You've seen me at a party. I mean, that's human interaction that's pretty close to on. Like, I do have... Terrible habit of interviewing people in any situation where
0: <laughs> I like, actually know what you're talking about. Yeah.
1: That's really funny. Um I never would have said but yeah. But I do think, I mean, this is the thing we do. Mm. So it does like get into your blood. Um, and you know, I there are definitely times in like, you know, social situations or non-on-stage situations when you put on the metaphorical jacket. Sure, that's true. Right.
0: <laughs> I find that that for me that's not usually when I'm around um, other comics because Mm -hmm. when I'm around other comics then I feel like the offstage joke competition lacks appeal for me. But if I'm in a room of like um, everyday citizens who have different jobs, I love to be the one that's like – and it's not even like a – it's not like a class clown thing, but I just can be very – captivating funny i know what that skill is i have worked that muscle so i can totally go into that really easily and i like to do that
1: people have such a cliched concept of what a stand-up is and it is really interesting to see all of the different shapes and sizes of people who came to this because there there is this notion of class clowniness um but, but what i find also interesting is like a partner triller was being a partner Trilla the whole time. Phoebe Robinson was being Phoebe Robinson, and that isn't what people would describe as class clown, but God damn it, I want to sit next to her you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, totally. I actually find that it's pretty well again, there are like these comics who are sort of of that personality type, but I think it's a lot more I don't know it's like a rule following sort of nerdiness that I think becomes this like boundaryless job later in life where yeah. it's like there's alcohol at my work and I tell jokes for a living. Like that to me feels uh very often. And in my case, it's uh it's like it almost an unpredictable reality. I was like, I followed every rule.
1: No, but that is an interesting dynamic that you either have those people Who, like, are like, yeah, I party and tell jokes for a living. (laughs) Right. And then by, you know, eight years into this, like, they're in recovery or, you know. Sure. Like, um, but I I do feel like most of the people I enjoy these days are people with (laughs) more of a studious and responsible approach to things. (laughs) Studious is great. Well, uh, there was that growth of shows like starting like seven or eight years ago where you had to go and do homework before you could come and do this show. And there were some people oh who just God. like, like clubby guys who hated it. Cause it's like, that's not material I can take on the road. And it's like, Oh, it's fun. Like I want to, I want to go and do it. And I also want to see what Kara Clank is going to write, you know?
0: I think so just for folks that might be listening that don't know exactly what you're talking about. You're talking about like, um, up had this certain twist or turn where suddenly to like compete here in LA specifically, yeah. but I've seen it other other places also. Um, to compete just for an audience, for a live audience, shows started doing sort of gimmicky themes yeah. or like this. This is going to all be uh, comics who whose set is drawn as they talk to you or whatever it yeah. is, and it's like these really arty side of stand up, which has always been there as like yeah. a shadow industry art stand up. Yeah, that just evolves over time, but it's always been there.
1: But even something like. Like, like roast battle is something where you have to, like, go write a bunch of jokes for it, or I want you to debate this topic, or, um, you know, teach everybody a lesson about, you know, history or something. Um, And those are really fun, but very nerdy. (laughs) Yeah,
0: definitely. Roast battle is very nerdy. Why don't we talk about that now? Um, It's true. You said that you have an inclination or predisposition to interview people as you're talking to them. Where do you think that comes from? I know what you're talking about. You're it's like you have a very engaged sort of interpersonal style where you ask a lot of questions and then follow-up questions and then are like I think looking for like real answers.
1: I um I think it is in part because I am a Scorpio um and we want to get to the heart of things. Um and I also think I just I like to learn Um, And then I also think, um, like, as a queer person, you have that inclination to just sort of like, I don't know, it's like, because there is such, there can be such a distance between what's going on inside of us and how we appear. I think there are some people uh, for whom getting to the Juicy Center is very appealing, and I think there are some people who are like, Oh, God, I love skating by on surfaces. Isn't it nice that we can do that?
0: Do you like people to know your juicy center? Um, By the way, what a great question. uh, (laughs) Do you like people to know your juicy center? But yeah.
1: um, I always imagined that I did. But then people have raised the prospect of me asking all of the questions is a great way of not answering questions, which I had never really thought before. I always thought of myself as, um, you know an open wound. Um or maybe more a lactating breast, you know? <laughs> um and I, you know, I, I didn't think about the way that you know, there are things that I that I don't lead with and maybe don't give people the opportunity to um it out on their own.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I say this with full um you know, self-knowledge or whatever, putting yourself in the position of interviewer is a position of power because you get to kind of guide what topics are going to be explored. And like on this show, I share a lot of my own self and people certainly ask me questions back, but it's also, it's not necessarily a neutral space, you know, like, like I'm the boss of this space. And I think when we do that interpersonally, that can Sometimes have that effect, too. Uh,
1: How do you feel about the fact that – I will deflect from that by asking a question. Do it. How do you feel about the fact that um, we expect different things from female and male interviewers? That on talk shows, men at desk, like suppliant at chair is very much one of the rules. But when we put women as interviewer, they are on a couch together or they are – at most chair next to chair. And in that case, it's probably a queer woman um, who's, you know, um, who's wearing a suit, you know?
0: I mean, I think that's such a good question. I have many times thought about this past election and how, if there had been a female late night host and specifically somebody who was a person of color, Mm. um, that that person would have been able to speak about what was happening in the election cycle from such a different place of knowledge, but also just visually yeah. would have looked different. And I think we don't— But,
1: Cameron, I think we need six sources for the same joke every night.
0: i just—we don't even— it's like I kept waiting. Sometimes I just feel like I'm waiting for someone to write this article, you know, like, mm. like 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 I have an observation about something in comedy and I'm waiting for somebody to write this article, whatever it is. And it's usually like, actually, no, there's gonna be 87 articles about like this comic using the F word in their special yeah. or something. And it, it's just like so much more interesting is the way in which having no voice in the space that lampoons mm-hmm. our culture means that like we don't get to take the power back. And I think that that extends to the the behind-the-desk thing. You know, it's like we're supposed to listen and be sympathetic and, you know, put our hand on the knee or, like, whatever would be appropriate. (laughs) But we're not supposed to, like, sort of grill or invite
1: or host, you know? Well, and the, the interesting thing about a comedy host situation is we have women in news because they are performing studiousness uh, and and sort of like re-underlining their competence. But there's a way that like late night host requires implicit authority so that he can f- fuck around. Um, That's right. And it, it, like, it's hard that we, the, the minute a woman gets into that space, there is already this thing of she's having to prove herself, which means... How can it feel effortless? It was really interesting seeing uh, the movie Late Night that Mindy Kaling wrote, just because at the center of the movie is this thing that we've never had before, like venerable right. female late night host. Um, and it was interesting to see the aesthetics and vibe that they were had put on Emma Thompson.
0: I haven't seen it yet, but I'm curious yeah. about it for the same for the reason that you're talking about. Yeah. And I. Yeah, I mean, you know, my experience as a person in the workforce and specifically in this job that we share Mm. um, is that I have to earn respect that I see given to my male peers freely. Even just, like, by nature of time that somebody's been working. Like, I have seen dudes that I know— don't like this other dude's comedy. Like, there's no there's no overlap on their Venn diagram. Like, I'm sure it's like, this isn't your favorite comic. Right. Treat each other with this, like, pure sensibility mm-hmm. that I just, I get, but I have to earn it. Yeah. Or it has to be from somebody, like, at a lower level than me. Um, you know, like an opener or whatever. Right. Might come to that naturally. But uh, it's so wild.
1: It, yeah. And there is a way that, like... Especially the longer a dude has been around, the more likely he is uh, to consider certain types of comics new flavors that are here to accent the real comedy. (laughs) Uh, Like a structural requirement of time. And they'll acknowledge that. Um, But the the notion of that degree of sort of like collegial respect does just take... I mean, like, I, f- I felt like I had to, like, prove myself so long and hard before it got to the point where people finally were just like, well, he's been around. He's going to be around. <laughs> and, you know, y- you got that degree of sort of, like, um, collegiality.
0: And you think you're on the other
1: side of that now? I mean, I think with many people, I think that there are definitely comics who are, like— ready to be dismissive and who is he, but I would say with um I mean essentially like, I mean,
0: I think you are. It's just Thank funny you. to like ask about um or it's I'm asking about, I guess, self-perception here. Like uh, whether you're on the other side of that line.
1: The thing is, is I feel that on the other side of that line with people who are sort of um my age-ish uh-huh. uh, or and or or sort of like levelish and younger and below. Um I think that um if they don't if they don't know who I am. Um I don't like I don't know. Like uh yeah I, I think if somebody <laughs> I'm not making you push somebody sees you on stage I think they're they're going to like like and respect you. I think for a lot of people uh who have been in comedy for twenty years or more uh the minute they hear my voice they are they're likely if they don't know context for me to be like why is he here? you know what's this um so I still feel like there's that
0: yeah I want I guess I want to ask about that for I think there's two parts of that that I want to ask about. One is you also have a writing career. You know, mostly um, my context for you over the last couple years isn't so much the things that, like, um, sort of, like, ring the bell of Mm stand-up, but more like I know you've been very consistently working as a writer, as a a television writer. Um, And so that's one thing that – how do you feel like that positions you in sort of i guess the world as a as a writer here in LA or like or as a comic well, has that affected your
1: Absolutely because i think people the more you become somebody who has influence in casting decisions because you are like a mid-level writer or higher i think people are like a little bit aware of that and i think
0: Oh, uh, that's funny.
1: Yeah. Yeah, um, sure. And i think there is just sort of this i'm still here element of um you know, he's he's been around, he's survived, sure. so whatever he's doing must be going well. Um, within the world of writing, I think it was <laughs> – within writing, there was a very clear transition moment where it went from, oh, God, where am I going to get my next job? To being able to comfortably be like, it's there. You know, um, that I was going to be able to swing from branch to branch. Um, like, in at the end of 2013, the show I was on, Totally Biased with W. Command Bell – Uh, was getting canceled and there came that panic moment I had felt so many times before and then I got an email that was like hey I heard you're available and that felt nice Uh, and then within writing I think being on a show for three seasons uh, when I was on the Mindy project I think that the question for within writing is just like is this person going to be able to deliver and Once you've been on a show with writers people respect that lasted a couple of – and you lasted on it a couple of years, then, like, people are, like, more likely to see you as just, like, somebody who can be relied upon. And there, there's, like, this rich network of, like, people who work together or, like, you know, oh – One of the venerable Harvard guys, like, trusted you. So the other Harvard guys will now know that while you are not, like, one of their beloved brethren, you can at least be trusted. And I think um, there was a more concrete sense in writing of, like, um, oh, yes, this is the point where Guy is now dependable and a valued person in a room.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. The Harvard guy thing that you're mentioning is that there are— Weirdly, we don't talk about this outside of the industry. Maybe people that are listening are... I'm just going to like decode Uh, some of the things that you're saying because I feel like there's some deep cuts. Um, Maybe a lot of people don't know that there is this huge infl- uh, connection between, like, specifically the Harvard Lampoon, but also other like groups of dudes that have gone to Harvard together who then went on to create. It and is write- like
1: secretarial school for being a comedy writer. Yes, like you graduate from it and they place you. Right. Like, um, um, my friend Chris, the very funny Chris Schleicher, um, super talented queer writer, um, but uh he graduated moved to LA and within a year was just give not given um but like uh got a spot um on a writing staff without having to do a lot of the things that people who didn't go to Harvard do have to do I guess we're
0: breaking the story that Harvard can open doors <laughs> I can't believe you heard it here first. (laughs) Oh, shit. Okay, wait. Here's the other branch that I wanted to follow before we get too far down this path. Um, You being, you know, here we are, we're talking about some sexism stuff that's in comedy and some just like visual lack of familiarity with the idea that a woman could be behind a desk, like that Uh whole thing. But then- you're a dude, you're a white mm-hmm. dude, but you are so atypical for stand-up. And I think that some of that is like your size. Uh-huh. And I think the other part of that is um, your queerness. Yeah. And I don't know very, I don't think I know another comic working who um, seems like you, you know, who reminds me of you or whatever. You're, and I wonder what that experience is is like, because especially since we started and we're talking and you and I are like making eye contact and we're like, no, I know that's what it would be like for women behind a late night desk. But here you
1: are, like you fall within some of this demographic and then, and then other ways you don't. I mean, there are problems that I don't have. I think one of the most interesting things was when I was starting out in San Francisco at the punchline, realizing the way that an audience, um, when a woman got on stage the men in the audience believed that they no longer were obliged to look at what was going on. <laughs> like,
0: true, still true.
1: <laughs> um, or, I mean, the most, the, the scariest. Is realizing that when all of the men are laughing, or some of the men are laughing, and none none of the women are laughing, men are oblivious. And if some of the women are laughing and none of the men are laughing, something's wrong. And, like, the women stop laughing because they are aware of the person next to you them.
0: You know what's so funny about that, too, though? And I was just in Burlington, Vermont, and I had this experience of, like, I was playing a club, which I don't always yeah. do
1: anymore. Yeah. And
0: there were a shit ton of men in the room. Yeah. And they were all, not all, many of them were laughing. Like, actually, no, almost all. Like, like, I was just like doing very, very well with all these guys. And then there was one guy, I was there for five shows, right? So one show, there was a guy who had like his hat pulled down, really low as like a baseball cap. And he was not making eye contact with me. And I couldn't tell if he was drunk or if he was going to hurt somebody. And that's what's so wild about... Like, he left for a second. I had to ask his the person he was sitting with, like, is that your friend? Do uh-huh. you know what's going on with that person? Because yeah. the thing about a man not laughing is that that becomes scary yeah. very quickly. Like, it's not just about, um. like, oh, men aren't satisfied, so therefore this can't be good. It's also, like, even just one guy. Yeah. You know, like, that can be so... i'm like does this guy have a fucking gun like that's what i'm thinking in my head
1: you know there's always the interesting moment when somebody in the audience is not having it and um it is very apparent to you at least um when i started out so frequently performing in like the central valley and stuff that was because people did not like having to hear a gay guy um But a couple of years ago, I was at the University of New Hampshire, and there was this boy with just his arms crossed, not having it, not laughing at anything. And, you know, when it is a student program, they don't know what, you know, uh, PC bullshit the school signed them up for. They thought they were just getting a comic. And so I was very aware of it, but I didn't say anything because, like, I love crowd work, and I love going at people um, for – you know, just, like, what they're serving. But there are times when you are, like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I, yeah, I, sure. I I don't know what bad is going on in your life. Anyway, the point is, after the show, he came up to say something to me. And I just, like, was, like, what are you doing here? You Your arms were across the entire show. You did not have a good time. Why are you talking to me? And he was, like, I came out three days ago. Oh, wow. <laughs> and he was, like, being gay in public for the first time. Oh my god! Um, and so that was very sweet. And then when I did shows in New England, like that were around there, I would sometimes stop it and just like we would have coffee, and that little boy would like check in with, "Oh, that's amazing." How gay was going? Um, but the thing is, is to answer your earlier question, I'm big. I don't have that. Pro- I, I don't have the problem of people assuming I, I don't matter. I'm big and white. Um, but then when I do talk, it, it was very interesting having to learn, like the minute people hear my voice and that it is not, is a gay voice and not the voice that should go with my body. Um, there will be reactions, you know? Um, and that I had to sort of like manage that energy mm. and deal with that. Um, yeah, but the, the You know, I I don't I would never imply that I have all of the problems that a female comic does. That's so
0: funny because even during that part where you're talking about that young guy in New Hampshire, I'm realizing that you and I have had a really different experience because I just realized as you were talking, maybe maybe this is not true, um, but maybe have you.
1: Have you been scared for your safety when you were on stage? Oh, that is another thing that Cuz that's uh,
0: how I felt. Not scared of like an audience from remember not liking yes. me, but scared for my safety. I just uh, And I just didn't know if you've had that experience.
1: No. I mean, like there's been a there's been a couple of times, but I also like I I am mean in crowd work and um, Oh, you you like,
0: are very um the boss of the
1: room. So yeah. there have been a couple of times when I left and I was like, is a dude going to start something? Wow. Um But that's, I, I don't think, ever the same kind of fear. Uh, like, I just don't fear for my bodily safety in that way. Oh, um, that's
0: so interesting. I don't know because, why I didn't think of that. <laughs> yeah,
1: it, and it's, it's interesting. Like, I, I like going on the road. But then when I remember, like, you know, if I were... A 5'3 woman going through the same experience, it might be less fun to stroll through Burlington, Vermont in the middle of the night with college students. Guy, I out. am 5'4. <laughs> 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 Shit,
0: that's so fucking real. My God. Yeah. Wait, so then let me ask you this question. What about, like, are you as a gay, like, just as a gay man? Are you ever worried for your safety or is that just like not an experience that you, I I mean, rejection is one thing, but physical safety.
1: Oh, I mean, n- no, like. What an interesting I, experience of queerness. I, I, mean, I feel like
0: not everybody has that experience.
1: No, it's, uh, it's very true. I mean, you are, I think I do still get very self-conscious about um, like outing myself in certain situations like, okay. Actually, here's here's the one situation where I like would have felt uh, in in physical danger. Because the thing is, is so many people are like, he is large. They would not uh, just start anything. Um, but then there are like in male situations. When I was young um boys wanted to get in fights to prove that they could beat up the big guy. Oh um, my god, sure. And I that was always very stressful for me, but um so <laughs> in 2013 I lived in New York. I came back and I had this one traffic ticket that I had paid online, but I was supposed to show up to court to take care of. Um I got pulled over and because of that I had to go to jail. Um and West Hollywood Jail was the most charming place. They were very supportive and nice. <laughs> but then the next day, I got transported to um, downtown so that I could be taken to the court. And it was just literally every boy who couldn't follow the rules in third grade. And it was one of those situations where I was like, oh, shit, somebody's going to do something. Um and then a lady came through and was like, do you need to be segregated? Are you gay? Are you gay? And I didn't realize that they did it. But then they put me in a little tank with uh, three other gay guys and four trans women. And we had a lovely day. Oh, wow. Yes.
0: And actually, even as you were telling that story of being a child and like being uh, targeted as like the big guy people need to beat up, I was thinking like, oh, that's a thing from prison. Like I just, yeah. so I can't believe that that's then where the story went. Yes. Cause I, I think you're totally, yeah, that is like a, a trope or whatever. I mean, it's, and I do get into the thing is, it's like,
1: I don't fear for my safety walking down the street, but my, my residue from that is when games of like masculinity show up in that kind of very present way, I'm just, my reaction is so much. I don't know. I don't know what to do, and this could end up going very badly because they do just have those things that they believe they need to fight over. I mean, more so in the cultural space of the little farm town that I'm from than sure. here. But there's still just that, and I, I don't understand those dynamics. Can you fight? Did you have to, you have to learn to fight? I mean, I did somewhat. I don't think I was ever good at it. I was always too much in my head, but also, I mean, I can hurt some, you know, I'm just big. I mean,
0: that's actually what yeah. I What I was kind of getting at is, like, this weird um, thing of being put in that position. I don't know what yes. it's like to be uh, somebody who could hurt someone, actually. Like, I mean, I, I'm just – I don't have that um, it is body. Always, it is <laughs> I just don't have that. It's,
1: <laughs> it's not really a thing I think about that much, and it is always interesting um, – when you deal with somebody with a, to me, I I am always thinking about the size of your personality more than anything else. Um, yeah, sure. And when I like hug somebody who I think of as being strapping, and you are reminded that. They Are petite, you know. Um, it are you saying you think we're the same size?
0: Because honestly, <laughs> me too, like yes. straight up, I mean, me I, too. I look at you, I'm like, that's the same size. Like, was, I'm not even like that's very real. For I me. was
1: in high school before I really realized that women were in some shorter than men, it had just never really crossed my mind, <laughs> sure. you know. They're in the middle of the TV frame, yeah,
0: exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, that's all very. I don't know. That's, like, mind-blowing. I don't know. I remember the first time I – I sat next to a comic named Matt Bronger on a plane one time. We were going to the same place to perform, and that is the first time I realized sometimes people are, like, maybe too big to fit somewhere. Because he's just, like, a foot and a half taller than me or something. Yeah. Like, he's, like, whatever, much taller than me, and yeah. we are sitting in the same seat. And I just – again, for, like, the same thing you're talking – I just – yeah I kind of think everybody's my size so yeah. and I do think that especially um in a weird job where like a very often I'm alone on stage yeah. there's no like even size
1: correlate right. like there's yeah. a, i
0: just am i just appear as a human in space or whatever,
1: and you know it was realizing the safety things but also just like the practical things of um you know, it's nice to be able to pick things up, you know, or like, um, <laughs> y- you know, reach the high shelves. Like, um, I, there is a nice lady who comes and cleans my house on a regular basis, and I just put things where she can't reach. So, That's like, fine. there are some things that I just have to put away once things are over because she can't get there. <laughs> <laughs>
0: dating when you are um meeting folks is this a factor like is is
1: oh your yeah i mean i'm i'm fat and that is not what a lot of gay men are into like um i think that for white gay men particularly having the option of looking like normalcy um, is, like, a power that they treasure and, Mm. um, like, uh, means a lot to them. Um, And I'm not that. I mean, like, there have definitely been dudes who were into me because this is their type and this is what they like. Um, And, you know... That's nice, but it's also just, I mean, the bigger problem is in my own head that, um, you know, I, like, I wish I were doing it more more normally and trying to get out of my own head and being able to appreciate the appreciation that somebody is throwing at me um, is, you know...
0: Wait, what do you mean? Let's talk about that for a second. Okay. When you say the the problem is in your own head, what do you mean? What's the problem that you're talking
1: about there? Just like uh, a sense that I'm not the right kind of gay guy. You know, uh, um, that uh, I wish I could be um, the delicate accessory that society seems <laughs> to want of us. And that we so frequently seem to enjoy being. Um, there are like... Ways that it is advantageous um, because I don't get... Like, I I think I just didn't get dismissed the way that some gay guys will get dismissed uh, when they are delicate little things. But I also think when it comes to, um, like, dating and sexual appeal, like, I'm just... I'm not a person to most gay guys, you know? And, like, that was a really hard fight Um, when I was first coming out, realizing that it's in most of what's going on is in their own head. I, myself, did not put myself in a lot of places that I didn't think were— that I thought was for cuter boys than me um, along the way. Not so much—like, when I was first coming out in Minneapolis, it was kind of nice because there's only one place to go every night. And, you know— like, you, everybody's there. What was that place called? Um, no, no, no. It's a different... It's big enough that there's a different place every ah, day of the week. Ah, got it. So, like, on Thursdays, it was the saloon. Got on it. Mondays, it was the gay 90s. Then I went to San Francisco, and stand-up was my life. But also, San Francisco is, like, the most body-positive and sex-positive place on the planet. And there were definitely guys who were terrible, who, you know, um, would... in you know, it's not unusual for us to invite someone over off of their picks, and then once they actually get there, be like, all right, we're done. Uh, and some people were were dicks about it, um, but it was still okay. But I think it was more when I got here and there were, you know, L.A. gay boys are very beautiful and statusy, and I would sort of, like, keep myself out of situations because I was like, that's not for me. And then getting to a point of... Well, I mean, being famous enough that I would go into a space and I would be enjoyed for that definitely helped. But also just realizing, like, oh, they're all terrified and scared. They're not terrified and scared. Like, I have nothing to do with that. Like, they are, if anything, being competitive with the person who's slightly better or slightly worse than them. No one's fucking, you know, like... There's nothing bad to be had here. And there have definitely been times when gay spaces have let me know that I wasn't welcome um, because I wasn't adorable enough. Um, And by that point in time, I was, you know, secure enough to be like, no, that's your mistake, not mine. You know, Mm -hmm. like the first time that happened at a club Seven minutes later, I was in the club, and t- 20 minutes after that, I was making out with a very cute boy. Like, <laughs> it went fine, you know?
0: Well, I do have some understanding of what you're describing. It's, it's a little different, um, but I think that, you know, my understanding of myself is that through, like, an, a little bit of an evolution— I I'm now like sort of not even trying to appeal to this thing that I was sort of weirdly successful at, but never felt successful at, which is being valued by men. Mm-hmm. You know, like I always um was kind of able to like if when I was when I conceived of myself as straight, I was always able to date. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I was very focused on people liking my personality like i would Mm -hmm. be like it's not anything having it has nothing to do with what i'm offering in like an attractiveness um and some of that is just like i think that the experience of being a butch woman in a patriarchal culture is like well you know we're essentially cows to be like inherited between you know fathers and yeah and sons-in-law um I have nothing to offer, you know, like just realizing that you're sort of valueless Mm -hmm. in this culture. And so, again, it's like kind of a little bit what you're talking about about gay culture, like realizing that the the thing that you are just doesn't have inherent value in this in that space.
1: Yeah. I mean, it butchness makes it harder to make you an accessory, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah. uh, Yeah. It requires contemplation of your personhood. Um, Yeah. I, I mean, it's. Uh, gay men are complex. There are ways that we are very shallow and people are ready to point that out. Um, I think a lot of those things are deeply defensive gestures. And I think, you know, once you push past that, um, we are people full of art and complexity. Um, oh, I love
0: I love that saying there, that they're deeply dis- defensive gestures. I, mean, I don't feel like I ever hear people talk about that, but that, that makes so much sense well, to me. Yeah. But Also,
1: we had to spend 20, 30 years explaining that we are not a mental disorder, yeah, which means that right. our comfort with being able to say there's some shared trauma within our community, um, you, you know, we don't feel ready to do that. And it's like, it's, I mean, it's the dangerous Instagram ability of gay guys mm. that, um, if we can make everything look nice in a photo, isn't that a nice idea? And trying to live towards that photo and sort of dealing with like the complexities and realities of things. And also this is LA where, um, we love a nice image and, yeah, uh, but it's also full of people who are, Artists and who love art. And I think getting past the shallow parts and getting to the complex parts is, you know, worth it and doable.
0: Well, and also, I mean, being – the experience of being, like, a queer person with that shared trauma that you're talking about and deciding to go into stand-up specifically, which is, like, I'm going to speak in the first person and the contract is that you're going to sit there and listen to me. Like, that is – still radical in a really exciting way it's what attracted me to it I still feel it every time I perform
1: um it is interesting how much people do not see the difference between us being characters and us being speakers you <laughs> yes know? Um, and you know it's like everyone's like well there are there are gay people in media there are like are a lot and it's like Mostly it is straight guys uh, writing for straight guys to perform, and, like, that's the limitation of what you're getting. And
0: And there's a big divide also between, like, this first group of people, like, the Ellen, Rosie, Wanda folks, that age group. Like, there's a huge divide where, like— now there's there are some emerging comics or maybe people more like sort of our age yes. or whatever.
1: But there's that's still like a 20-year age gap. Also, no men came out during that period. No men came out during that period. Um, and that, that is – it is a thing that fascinates me and that there, there was that sort of break between people at the middle of their career taking the risk to come out. And then having a, a feeder crop come up takes another, you know, 10 years. You just – Like, for such a long time, you didn't see anybody who did this who wasn't, like, a straight guy. Um, But the fact that... No, no dudes came out. So. Well,
0: Bob Smith, right?
1: Okay, but well, but, I, but just, he's very. Bob Smith never like Bob Smith never made it. Bob Smith yeah. was the first gay man on uh, the Tonight Show. Uh, like within a very short period of time, they had Bob Smith on and Suzanne Westenhoffer uh, to sort of be like queer comics. They're a thing, and then Bob had some health troubles, but like also there was there was nowhere past seven minutes to go. And I think that's right. the thing that fascinates me about the 90s is that you had these people who, like, because we were opening up our minds to queerness, got to be on showcase shows, and then there was literally not a next step for them. I and, still
0: find that to be true. Yeah. I mean, for most of us, you know, we're still waiting for, like, our... um, For someone to think that, like... We might have multiple hours in us well, about queer topics, too, yeah. not about like well, society or but then culture. There's,
1: there's also the issue of um, these things matter a lot to me. But like on, on the one hand, you've got the thing of nobody in the middle of their career came out and there were people there were men who could have. Um, but then also th- there among gay men particularly, there's not an audience. Like, queer women now understand that going and performing, like, going and watching a queer comic is a thing that you would do, and gay guys go watch Amy Schumer. Like, it just doesn't cross anybody's mind, and we're like, we're not being a market for ourselves in the way that, like, other minority groups are, you know? Yeah,
0: that's definitely true. I mean, and the other thing that is, like, Because it's also interesting, I don't see anybody like, again, below sort of like a LN level who's yet been able to figure out how to maintain crossover appeal. Because now most of my audiences, like if I play a theater, not a club, Mm -hmm. most of my audience is self-selecting queer, which like I totally understand. But also, um, it does feel like I'm disappointed in I it's I like love my audience. It's not them. I have no problem with my audience. I'm disappointed in straight people that they can't like ex- open their mind enough to think about going to see like a, like I'm a good comic, you know? Like I <laughs> yes, think you I'm are. fucking good, you know? Yeah. And so that that to me is like I find that frustrating. And I can't even imagine how frustrating you might find it since you just described this situation with gay men. Like yeah. I think that that is very frustrating. I
1: mean the thing is, is it is very cool to go to a show um, where that is like a self-selected theater situation, and I love it. Uh, but well, t- for it to be, um, mine is a lot like a lot of twenty-something girls of color, um, <laughs> and like that makes me. Yes, there are gays there, but um, seeing like. Young professional ladies who are empowered by getting to see me fucking thrills me. I'm like, yeah, that's yes, awesome. we're doing this right. Uh, uh, but it, no, it is really hard that um, it goes back to that Instagram ability question. Like, stand up is inherently about the dangers and the problems and, um, you know, like the realities of life. And we're. Gay men are used to never seeing that stuff be reflected, and it feels dangerous when it is publicly talked about, which is why – I mean, but also, that is so changing. Like, you know, the scene of Brooklyn comics like Joel Kim Booster and Matt Rogers and mm-hmm. Julio Torres was so much the result of a changing audience of cooler people who were um, – excited to see that kind of stuff and you now have you know like Joel's telling jokes about poppers left and right and um John early has some excellent bottoming material and that's not just cliches but like a little bit of honesty and you know the the cool boys and girls of Brooklyn are excited for it yeah in a way that like the gays of Cleveland. Um, let's go with Columbus. It's a more fun town. The gays of Columbus just haven't experienced yet.
0: You know what else is funny to me th- about that, though, the way you just described that? And I don't know that I've had an episode of Queer yet where I talked this much about stand-up, so it's kind of fun. Okay. Um, But you were talking about how it is dangerous. It is dangerous to hear... Like, it's still... Like, when I used to talk about, um, you know, 12 years ago when I used to talk about... Uh, sex, that was not something that like, I really saw other lesbian comics talking about at the time, um, in like a way that wasn't like too in groupy, but that it was very frank. Yeah. And, and I, anyway, I literally like gasps, like actual gasps from the audience. And I do see that when gay men perform. And I think it's so, it's like, it's so funny that, um, you're right. It's happening in Brooklyn. Stand-up has always been about, like, what is the most dangerous, edgy, fucked-up shit we could say that's real and raw and what's really going on in our culture. And that is why I'm like, this This is it right now. You yeah. know, like, I just—that's that's, that's my—I guess my frustration is wanting, um, wanting straight people to be more interesting and to think that, like, you know what is, like, the most dangerous thing I could like? It's actually this guy. Like, this is actually exactly in line with what I've always liked from, you know, the— like like I like Carlin, I like Pryor, and then I like yeah. Joel Kimbooster talking about butt sex. Yeah. You know, like that's that is the inheritance of that of oh, this field.
1: Well Camille Nangiani has that very good line that he knows white people can look through his eyes and understand it because he's spent his whole life looking through white people's eyes. Um and you know, but what it's going to take for people to like figure that out, um, you know, is an interesting question. You know, how long is it going to take?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. Well, what do I want to ask you about next? How How is it right now for you, um, like going from a, when you do tour and you're in other cities, yes. going from this experience, because we've also talked, we've sort of like edged around um LA is full of people that are like per capita more uh, attractive than a lot of cities. Uh (laughs) I don't mean that in a a shitty way to other cities. It's just that a lot of people who are attractive move here because they think they're going to be able to capitalize on that. Mm -hmm. It's bizarre. It is extremely weird. It's a weird part of this city. Then you go to other places. Some of the stuff that we've talked about here, like you're showing up in a different city and you're telling the jokes that you're telling. Like, how does that, how does that change? Say you walk running around LA doing shows versus you performing in New Hampshire, wherever you're talking about. On any of these topics, like, like uh, your how you look or what you're talking about or your booming voice. Like, is that different for you?
1: I, I think I'm able to assume. And just more sophistication from an audience here in New York that I can just start off and start talking and I don't need to, you know, I can trust that they assume that gay people exist and I might be one of them and they're not going to be surprised when it gets to, um, you know, like something that involves me and a dude. Um, because at the beginning of my career, like there were times when i would try to do that and not sort of make a joke about being gay but just have it be incidentally present and audiences were like what um but also america's changing and i don't think i even do that on the road so much anymore Hmm. um yeah um me neither actually and i definitely um you know I don't know. I would say I pull decent tail on the road because it's just nice to have someone from out of town or you go to a place like San Francisco where everyone just wants to fuck all the time. But I would also say, I mean, I do all right here at home uh, just because um, I have... Uh, more social networks to work. Um, It's in New York that things get truly dark.
0: That's so funny. (laughs) Actually, when I said that's what I'm talking about, I've literally never hooked up with anybody on the road. How would that even happen? No, I have no interest. I have no interest. I have no interest. But, like, I'm so happy for you.
1: Uh, One of my favorites was last time I was in Burlington. I got done with the show, and I had a grinder message from – or, no, 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 Uh, like, yeah, I had a grinder message from a dude who lived – a block from the show, who was like, I saw you were there. I didn't go. I had other things to do, but do you want to hang out now? And I was like, Yes.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that's well, congrats on that. And did you have him pay you a ticket price plus also get two drinks?
1: No. Well, no. I performed for the love of the game.
0: <laughs> Can I uh, this is this is something I was thinking about earlier. Um, I have dated folks that are like taller than me, folks that are shorter than me, folks that are like skinnier than me, folks that are heavier than me. and um, I feel like i i it changes my perception of myself a lot.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: what is going on with this other person? Sometimes I can feel like real big and tough if I'm with somebody who's little than me yes. or sometimes I want I feel very like protected. and I guess I was wondering if. How tall are you? I am 6'3". Yeah. Like, how how often in your life have you been with a dude who is, like, physically larger than you?
1: I mean, it would be hard to achieve. Um <laughs> it's never been the case. I've always asserted that if someone wants to have sex with me, they a little bit want to be scared. Um, <laughs> oh, shit. But, um, yeah, I mean, the thing is, is uh, the gentleman with whom I currently have an understanding um, is, like— He is a big guy. He is, like, um, he's a little bit shorter than I am, uh, and he's very burly. Um, And mostly I just, when um, in flagrante delicto, don't want to fear that I'm going to break a person. Um, So a certain degree of substance is required. I've never really dated anybody tiny. Like, um, yeah, I mean, not that I don't find them adorable and wonderful it's just um
0: well i i mean i guess i was gonna ask a little bit and if if you're dating a dude who's burly maybe you do have this feeling of like somebody being able to like hold you and snuggle you up and like make you feel protected and i was wondering if you've had that experience because
1: yes though there are there are always the situations where i mean the very rare situation of somebody being taller enough than me that i can like put my head on their shoulder like That's nice. I've never had that um, with a a gay guy, but sometimes I've been like with, you know, just sort of standing with a straight guy and giving him a hug and realize like, oh, that would be lovely.
0: Yeah, Um, that's like, it's like a part of, I think, just being a human that sometimes we want to feel like.
1: Um, But uh, yes, I mean, I am always bigger than anyone uh, I am messing around with. Yes.
0: Wow, I did not. I mean, I just actually didn't know the answer. Yes. What the answer would be. Well, shit, I promise that I will um, give you a hug after this Uh that makes you feel very small and held. Somehow I'll figure that out. It'll be like a mental thing. Yes. I think we can do that together. Yes. Uh, Guy, I think it's like time to ask you this final question. Um, Can you shout out a queero, which is a person, place, or thing made you feel like you can be who you are today?
1: I actively avoided talking about this person. We were talking about queer stand-ups before because I was holding on to her to be my queero. It is Margaret Gomez. Margaret Gomez is a comic who I saw on TV in the nineties who was Beautiful and smart and funny and gay as the day is long and was like, I mean, I saw her do a joke about Anayas Neen on like uh, a showcase show. Um, she was so amazing and at a time when we were like really excited about lesbians and Latinas and um, she, like she and Robin Williams like promoted her a bunch and she had like a moment and then there wasn't that next step for her. Uh, And she does a lot of one person shows now and in the Bay area, she teaches classes. I mean, she's an amazing performer, but I think if there were a person who I saw doing very gay stand up at a time that I was figuring out I might be gay and to stand up, um, it was her. And I just love so much that she's in my life and that she is somebody who, I can reach out to you when I have questions. I mean, mm. the one one advantage of our situation is that while the people who came before us um, aren't didn't reach the heights that straight guys were able to, they are so much more accessible. And even when it comes to um, you know queer and straight female comics who I so loved and respected in like the '90s or early 2000s, so many of them are just around. Like, That's true. That's really true. It's cool. Yeah, it's really cool. And sad. <laughs> yeah, all of those
0: things. Margaret, I feel like, is somebody I saw... Where... Did I... Like, in P-Town or something? I don't know. I feel yeah. like I... Yeah. but but... Um, this is somebody you are, like, personally friends with. You have to be personally friends yes. with this person that you... It's
1: just so nice. Or, to, like, yeah. Scott Thompson is someone I can call if I need to. Yeah. And um, that's so lovely. And it's hard to see that so many of their contemporaries like had these glorious careers while well, they have had fine careers, but um, it, you know, I, I I am wish that they had had more.
0: You know, I think some of what you're talking about that's also true is those women that you're talking about from the nineties. a lot of those folks are, they still do stand up, you know, and, And their peers or the contemporaries or whatever who were, like, launched into megastardom don't. And so that's also an interesting and cool feature of, like, what—like, the other side of a very sad and fucking unfair coin is that these are people who've been doing stand-up forever.
1: First of all, when Jerry Seinfeld can't find anyone who's a woman to have coffee and cars with, (laughs) I'm like, you dated every one of these bitches in the 80s. They're still around. Like, you know— can't Elaine get in a car? Uh, Boozler, not Dennis. But like, um, I was at a show at Revolver. This is, I was at a show at Revolver, and Kathy Ladman, who I love and respect, came and did a set. And, you know, most of the time, Kathy is like living out in the valley, raising a family. Um, but this is someone who was the contemporary and equal of, uh, you know, Seinfeld and all of those guys. And she told a joke that was, perfect and timeless. It was about saying thank you. And I went up to her after the show and I was like, oh, that's so good. You must have had that in your back pocket since 1987. That joke is perfect and timeless and the best. And she was like, I wrote it last week. And yeah, these are people who are still trying, you know?
0: Yeah, exactly. And- like still writing their own material yeah. as opposed to, you know, what happens just time wise after a while, you're not writing your own shell and, you know, I mean, whatever, these people are not writing their own shit. They can't, they're not writing their own shit. Um, So yeah, it's, it is something very cool. You know, the, my like greatest access point for some of this stuff is like the shows that happen in P town, just because like, so if you're ever in Provincetown and you're like looking for something to do, there's always people who have like one woman shows or one dude shows who've been like doing this for, and it's actually, it's mostly one woman shows, but just, there aren't that there's like there's not there's not really dudes of that generation that are gay that are out that I've, survived.
1: I've never yeah, I mean that aspect of things of just, you know, a quarter of the population, a third of the population being removed. Um uh I've never gay resorted on the East Coast. I've only oh, wow. I've only ever done uh Palm Springs and uh Laguna Beach and uh, Gurneyville.
0: Oh guy, I um I have to say, I think you would kind of love
1: it. I mean, I don't know. It seems interesting, but um, I'm judgmental. What's your ju- what's your judgment? I mean, Provincetown. I just don't know what it is, and I'm like the beach in Massachusetts. It will be gray. <laughs> um,
0: that is a fair point. You've made a fair point. Although sometimes it's sunny. Sometimes it's sunny in the summer.
1: And the dynamics of Fire Island, I just don't understand.
0: Right. I've never been to Fire Island. It does. Yeah. It that does kind of elude me. I think yes. that one thing I love about Provincetown which is not so dissimilar from Palm, from Palm Springs is that it is the edge of it. Like of the like the same way yeah. that like Key West is. It's literally like gays being like is this far enough? How do we need how do we can we have this part? Yeah. Like it's so and it's so um there's something very cool about that, about this like and by the way, that also means it's cost prohibitive because yeah. you have to like figure out how the fuck to get there. But um, there's something very cool about sort of being like at the at very end of things yeah. with the people that, you know, are also queer. Like yeah. it's like no one is happening through there. Yeah, There's not like a accidental bachelorette party or whatever or like it's it's – Intentionally gay
1: I do love that feeling of spaces we have created for ourselves And that feeling of sort of like Joy You know
0: Yeah it's pretty beautiful Yeah Guy Before I send you back into your day I just want to say um, I love your stand up I think you are so fun to watch And always when you did my show Put Your Hands Together Um you know, you're the kind of comic that I would, like, come out of the green room for because you're so powerful on stage. You're just such a powerful presence.
1: I, I love your stand-up, Cameron, and it is – it was really lovely. You riff so much on that show. You riff so much on stuff that was, like, going on presently that it was always really fun to see what's what's her brain doing with this. You know, it's like oh, –
0: that's so nice.
1: Um, the. the <laughs> So much of the comedy is coming from the same places that, like, um, getting somebody's, you know, reactions um, that were coming from a really funny comedy place but wasn't the same as everybody else I always really loved.
0: Oh, man. That's so cool. I'm so glad to have a chance to tell you that I love your work. Thank yeah. you.
1: <laughs> Bye.